This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Mike Green, I'm here in Marin County again, and eventually I'll get a chance to pick up and travel. One of the first places I look forward to going is down to Los Angeles to see my friend Marco Papik. But Marco has been kind enough to join us on screen. Marco, you're the chief strategist slash, uh, you know, a super intelligent geopolitical thinker at a firm that's near and dear to my heart, Clock Tower Group. Can you um, just give us a very brief background on um, what you do at Clock Tower and how you've kind of come to the seat that you're in? Okay, so yeah, I mean, I was in uh, cell side research before this. I worked for BCA Research, which is uh, the uh, macro firm uh, that focuses on investment research. Before that, I was in geopolitical risk consulting. So I come to finance from um, a little bit of a different background, did a lot of political risk, and then took that to cell side research. Um, and then I wrote a book, which just came out, um, kind of uh, bookending that research experience. Um, and then, oh, there it is. Look at that. There it is right here. Geopolitical Alpha, which has one of the best intros of any finance book that I've ever read. It is on par with some of my favorite stories in terms of uh, the dynamic of being called in as a very young employee to answer the question of how important it was that the German president had resigned. And your answer was... My answer was, I don't know who the German president is. And uh, the, yeah, so that's, that's how I start off. That was the actually moment in my career when I realized that the political analysis worlds and the finance worlds weren't really speaking to one another because the hedge fund that called me in to, to answer this question was, you know, this is like 2000 and this is early in the Euro area crisis. So there was a sense that this could have perhaps been important and relevant. And my argument was like, look, gentlemen, I, I have no idea who the German president is. Um, and, you know, the answer to the other side was like, well, that's because you're not a good analyst. I was like, no, no, you don't get it. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Uh, but yes, thank you. Yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was an interesting. I tried to make the book funny because it's not really a forecast book. It's more a framework book. And, you know, who wants to read a framework book? It's, they're, they're boring. So. Well, it's it, it's interesting because I would agree with the description. It's fun. It's it is a very fun, enjoyable read, um, particularly for somebody who who knows some of the components. But also because what you're hitting on there, while it sounds flippant, is actually a really, really important dynamic, right? That sounds incredibly powerful. The German president has resigned, right? That that must be something important. But the reality is, is that the German president you describe in the book as being similar to Queen Elizabeth, right? It's largely a figurehead. It doesn't carry the same role as an Angela Merkel, for example. It's just not the same job, right? Um, and so it sounds really important, but one of the biggest challenges in the macro space where you're dealing with an incredible onslaught of data or information that is coming at you all the time is exactly that issue to figure out what is relevant. And you know, part of your framework is, if I don't know who the German president is, there are two choices. I am either terrible at my job 
or it's really not that important. And this is being brought to your attention because the news lines, news wires have nothing else to say at this point. And that's really the core of your, your message under that, that framework, correct? You, you couldn't have put it better. I mean, all I would say is, yeah, I mean, there's a level of, of knowledge that you have to have as an investor. And I think more and more politics and geopolitics matter, obviously self-servingly, I think so. But uh, I would also say that if you focus on the material world, uh, the, con- the, the world of constraints, the world of, of, uh, of actual levers and fulcrums that can move the markets rather than kind of the psychological you know, preferences of leaders, I think that you will just make your life easier. And I think you'll have a more investment relevant approach to thinking about these nebulous uh, political issues. And so this meshes very well with the way I tend to think about the world, right? Which is, and people have heard me describe it this way, that a market doesn't measure or provide you with a history of information, right? It, it provides you with a history of constraints, effectively people who for one reason or another ha- had to buy and sell, whether that is because they had a mandate that said, when you receive cash, you will buy and you will buy in proportion to X, Y, Z, or when you receive a redemption or a margin call, or a tap on the shoulder from a risk manager, et cetera, you're going to be forced to execute. And I think one of the things that I'm discovering, and it certainly fits with kind of your overall message that macro is gaining in importance, is that fewer and fewer people have true discretion, right? The world of the Paul Tudor Jones sitting astride or the George Soros is sitting astride the macro world and being able to say, I'm gonna do whatever I want is being fairly rapidly replaced by a world where there's very few true discretionary traders that are not encountering constraints in one form or another. Does that feel fair? Well, you know, at Clock Tower, we, we try to seed discretionary macro managers. So uh, I hope that you're right. We, are, we, we feel the same way. And the, the reason I say that I hope you're right is because I do think that there's still value. Uh, as you know, of course, I mean, you've, you've managed money and you're a pro, so like I think, uh, I think you would hope that you are right because it will increase the value of those truly discretionary managers. That's certainly my sense. Is that ultimately um, that opportunity for alpha will emerge as you're able to truly think cross asset and you're able to think in the context of risks that exist. But there's also challenges, right? Because those of us who have been trained in the kind of classic discretionary relative value framework, right, which is which is typically what you're focused on, it has been subsumed in some ways by some of the factors that you've heard me talk about or that you have talked about in terms of the geopolitical dynamics, whether that's a Fed response function, a consensus moving from austerity to um, uh, surplus, shall we say, um, largesse is maybe the better uh, alternative to austerity. Um, and the geopolitical conflict between China and the United States. And that's an area where you and I have had some pretty significant conversations um, in the past couple of years. Your general characterization is that, yes, the U.S. and China would like to be able to disaggregate themselves. There's compelling reasons under national security frameworks that the two need to move towards separation. They're ultimately not compatible but they're caught right now. And and you probably better than anyone else I know have articulated this, that there really is no alternative. COVID kind of brought this out in spades where when the U.S. decided, hey, PP&E is really important, we suddenly had to turn to China for all of our supplies, right? Many of our pharmaceuticals, similar type dynamics. 
Where is your thinking today in terms of that framework? Can China and the U.S. move apart more aggressively? Are they moving apart or are they locked in this dance that's going to keep the world in kind of a geopolitical unity for an extended period of time? Well, I always start off, you know, with a theory and sort of the big picture. And so one of the things that the viewers of Real Vision who have seen us kind of spar on this before will know, I will start off with what is the distribution of power in the world like? And I start with the assumption, which could be wrong, that the world is more multipolar than bipolar or unipolar. A multipolar world simply means that there are numerous countries that can pursue their national interests, which includes economic interests, independent of one another. Why is this significant? It's significant because we know from pretty robust research in political science, like actual like scientific research in political science, which is rare as a political scientist, you know, I can, I can say <laughs> uh, very little science there. But uh, game theory shows uh, that if you have a multipolar distribution of power between states, it's very difficult to get complete bifurcation. Yeah, if you have a multipolar distribution of power, it's very difficult to get complete bifurcation. And the reason is simply that allies cheat. So mm -hmm. I think the first time you and I talked about this was 2019. And at the time, I said it was going to be very difficult for the U.S. to compel its allies to follow through on some of the Trump administration policies towards China. Now, in some ways, that was wrong. For example, Huawei and anything related to 5G, I think compliance has been slow, but you know, generally moving in the right direction. But in other things, compliance has been terrible. So we know, for example, that you know Samsung is building two different production lines, one for China, one for U.S., to avoid some of these sanctions. Um, you have a lot of uh, semiconductor capex firms, Netherlands, Japan, uh, that initially were quite, uh, quite uh, in line with the Trump administration policies, but have since abandoned them. And that has created pressures domestically in the U.S., because it means that very significant portions of the U.S. industrial uh, capacity will lose out, not to China, but to allied companies. And that will impact American geopolitical power. What do I mean by that? Well, if an American semiconductor capex firm doesn't get a contract in China, it doesn't get the revenue, it can't spend that revenue in R&D, it can't be taxed by the U.S. government, which can then use those resources to you know, develop more robust containment infrastructure around China. And so in a multipolar world, because of this allied drift, you get continued trade. So a chart that I brought with me today for you is, you know, a historical example of this, so not just theoretical, but you can see uh, two charts that I brought on the left. You can see that before World War One, UK, France, and Russia all traded with Germany right up until the start of the war. And on the right side of the chart, you can see that Japan and the US traded all the way up until the start of the Second World War. So this is a good example for us where I think we're headed. You can also use the example of Japan and China, which have had a very acrimonious relationship for a long time, but specifically after the uh, Senkaku Island dispute 2010 to 2012, yes, Japanese FDI and exports to China peaked 2011, 2012, but they haven't collapsed since then. They've stabilized. And so I think the world we're entering is one where you will see continued trade and continued investment in the two economies, uh, but a bifurcation in specific technologies that I would call kind of 21st century 
uh, goods. So when you think about that type of um, dynamic, right? I mean, there's an interesting challenge because you're simultaneously building two production lines where a larger production line could serve this two separately, you know, together effectively with higher productivity and higher more higher efficiency. And that broadly has defined the, the era of globalization, right? We've been able to move to economies of scale where a single large semiconductor facility can produce for the entire world. Now you're describing a scenario in which two, you know, effectively medium pizzas replace a single extra large pizza, right? It's a great analogy. I'm going to steal that. Yeah, you should. Um, Domino's, two for $5, right? Come on. The underlying features of that can be interpreted in two separate ways. When things are humming, right? I have two facilities now that are going, giving me greater robustness, reducing some of the the, uh, risks of a single production facility going down. So it is a more um, robust creation, but it is less efficient, right? In the same way that there's, you know, fewer toppings relative to dough in two medium pizzas versus a single extra large, right? How do you think about that in the dynamic of how the world changes, right? Both in terms of, does that create more inflationary conditions? Does it lower corporate profitability? Does it create conditions under which there is less pressure or more pressure in terms of the need to either come back together or separate? As an investor, I'm just very excited about this world because it's a world that will be like the late 19th century. You know, we will have to kind of contemplate things like politics and geopolitics. So I'll give you two discretionary ideas that I have based on this world. First, I think that uh, this is not a bullish world if you're making semiconductors. I mean, that's, you know, you're, you're kind of talking about that well, already. World if you're making semiconductor manufacturing equipment. Boom. That's okay. right. And that would be my first kind of trade recommendation. So the chart that I have here is um, sort of a, a, a semi-capex index um, that we created uh, mm-hmm. as a sort of a macro signpost. And uh, you can see it's done really, really well since November um, and actually even better than like the fangs and so on. So I think that semi-capex plays are going to do really well. That's the first thing. The second thing that I would say as, as a recommendation is I think that made in China and made in US firms are gonna do well. But, but let me just explain what I mean. Not in every sector, just in those sectors where currently, uh, so Chinese producers lead certain consumer sectors in the US and vice versa, certain American uh, or Western uh, producers lead in Chinese sectors. It doesn't mean that like Apple will stop selling phones in China. It just means that their TAM is probably you know, close to being maxed up, maxed out. And, and I think that's the way that we can, you know, construct these sort of made in China, made in U.S. indices. And that's a very exciting moment. But it doesn't mean that we will onshore completely the toys and T-shirts and toaster oven supply chain from China. And I, I, I think that's just not going to happen. There will be the selective onshoring of very, very high tech manufacturing. But as I said earlier, you're already starting to see companies break ranks. And not because they're putting commercial imperatives over geopolitical. It's not because they're subverting American national interests. I mean, if you're a U.S. manufacturer of uh, CapEx goods for the semiconductor industry and you're locked out of China completely, you can't even 
supply them with machinery that will allow China to produce semiconductors at 40 nanometers, which is in no way technologically advanced. We're talking like 2014 era chips. You're going to cripple domestic capex, semiconductor capex industry, and, and that's not in the national security interest of the US. So I think that the Biden administration, and we're already starting to see this in some of the moves they've taken, is starting to adopt, I think, what's a, a little bit more of a nuanced position uh, between the doves and the hawks. Uh, I think that for the most part, you will start to see industry players have more of a say in the kind of decisions that are made, um, and not in some callous, flippant way that it was the case in the 90s, where the commercial imperative just completely took over but in a more meaningful and thoughtful uh, approach. And that's potentially going to also reduce some of the tensions because China will not be starved of some of the technology that it requires to continue with its export-oriented uh, economic model. It just won't have as much of an access to the most high-tech uh, of tech. So when you think about that dynamic, it, China having limited access to the most high-tech components, does that mean that it is going to be onshored back to the United States? Is it going to be redirected into quote-unquote neutral countries like a Korea or a Taiwan? How, how are you thinking about that? So first of all, th that's a very complicated question. I don't know if I have an answer. We only go for complicated questions. I want simple and direct answers in response. But Maybe. No, just, just, just joking. <laughs> Look, I think Here's what I would say. I would say that currently there are some parts of the U.S. strategy that, that I think are, uh, don't make sense. And they're actually quite dangerous. I'll give you an example. Um, forcing Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturers to build fabs in the U.S. is, I think, just headline political kind of like, yay, we did something. But it's actually quite dangerous because it reduces the value of Taiwan to the U.S., so there's an unintended consequence of kind of wanton onshoring without thinking about it. And one of those things is that right now, Taiwan is like a basket with all these semiconductor eggs of the world in it. That really increases value of that place to a lot of different uh, entities, not just China, but US and you know, up in Japan. Um, if, if somebody broke this basket and all the eggs fell out, you know, a lot of countries in the world would meaningfully be upset about that. If the U.S. administration, for political reasons, for kind of like, you know, New York Times headline reasons, forces Taiwan to build $20 billion plants in Arizona, and this continues to happen, it will devalue the geopolitical and economic significance of Taiwan, which makes it less likely that anyone will care what happens to this island in the future. So you see, there's unintended geopolitical consequences of some of the moves that are happening right now. The other thing is that I think it's also very simplistic to think that you know, China can be prevented from having high-tech semiconductors, and therefore they will somehow be slowed in their uh, geopolitical power or their eventual rise. Um, the Azerbaijan-Armenia war that happened in Nagorno-Karabakh is a very good example of why you don't need uh, you know, five nanometer semiconductors to conduct a pretty modern war. Azerbaijan, the military of Azerbaijan performed like really profoundly much better than anyone thought using very simple drones, most of them imported from Turkey and Israel. And I can assure you these drones did not have the most uh, sophisticated semiconductors in them. Uh, so the idea that this is somehow critical and that the whole world hinges on it is one wrong. China doesn't need five nanometer chips uh, to be a sophisticated military adversary of the United States, first and foremost, that's a fact. And two, 
by focusing on this uh, obsessively, there are unintended consequences that could actually be meaningfully problematic for some of uh, U.S. allies in the region, such as, you know, like forcing Taiwan to build RFABs leads to unintended consequences that are just unnecessary. So I actually, so I agree with that. Um, I'm not sure that that changes the gameplay, though. If I'm the United States and I'm faced with the choice of do I remain vulnerable to a China attack on Taiwan because Taiwan is integral as a physical presence, not as an intellectual presence in my supply chains, is it worthwhile maintaining that risk in order to not provoke effectively? Because this is exactly my concern with Taiwan is that if I look out two to three years down the road, a significant quantity of the IP and value of Taiwan to the United States is going to be removed. Yeah. Ironically for China, that suggests that the right time to move is perhaps earlier, not to wait until those events are in place, unless you really think that they don't care about the impact, the ability to put the U.S. on its back foot. I mean, you know, it's all obviously always difficult to put ourselves in the shoes or the, the, the mind space of, of leaders of other countries, but we have to do that and think about constraints. I think one thing that 2020 proved is that the Chinese economy is still very much export dependent uh, and that their whole dual circulation strategy in the new five-year plan is going to be very difficult to execute. It's going mm -hmm. to take time. It's going to take time for China um, to you know, really pivot to consumer-oriented economy. And I think that policymakers in Beijing understand this. It's a constraint. And so uh, I think this constraint will continue to weigh on any um, decision to potentially in the future reunify with Taiwan in a military way. Um, I don't think that the presence of IP in Taiwan matters much to Beijing because I think we all know what would happen to that IP if there was a military attack, I mean, it would flee or be destroyed by Taipei itself. So just keep that in mind. I mean, this isn't, you know, it's not like Civ 3, you know, like for those fans of computer games, they'll know what I'm talking about. You can't just like go and conquer another country and get its IP. It's difficult. Um, so to me, I think that those are constraints for China. I think the constraints for the US, uh, so, so in a way, I mean, what I just said sounds pretty, you know, pretty bullish or pretty dovish. Right. Um, but I do think there's obviously risks. And I think those risks are heightened right now. And what I would say, Mike, is that there's like kind of a U-shaped distribution of probability. Uh, if x-axis, as, as I'm showing on this chart, x-axis is your time, y-axis probability of attack. I think right now, or, or some sort of military conflict, I think right now we are in a window that uh, does concern. I think for the next three to eight to nine months, Mm -hmm. There is a heightened risk, not so much because of what Beijing is doing. I would say because more on the U.S. side. And there's two, two reasons for that. One, uh, U.S. is in a transition between two administrations. Um, I think that the Biden administration, as I expected, uh, has been much more forceful uh, than, than people thought. And mm -hmm. I think that the Biden administration is taking a position of assertiveness with China that Trump never really used in that they're talking about human rights, talking about geopolitics. Trump was much more mercantilist in his demands yep. of China, which are easier to satisfy. The other risk is strategic ambiguity. And I think this is a really big risk. The Trump administration and the Biden administration has set China as a rival. 
you know, almost a Cold War kind of era enemy. And, you know, that's fine. That's that's what the U.S. policymakers have decided to do, understood. But then you cannot have strategic ambiguity about Taiwan. This is a really, really big problem. There was no ambiguity between Soviet Union and the United States. In fact, the two sides worked very carefully in ensuring that there was no ambiguity to the point where they were allowed to monitor position of intercontinental ballistic missiles across each other's territory. There were overflights that were allowed to assure each other that mutual assured destruction was still the case. This was an incredible level that policymakers in the Soviet Union and the United States went to to ensure that there was no ambiguity about what would happen if red lines were crossed. Now, strategic ambiguity that I'm talking about, of course, is U.S. policy towards Taiwan, which is like we may or we may not defend Taiwan. Uh, we, you know, and that's a really, really bad, bad idea because those kind of ambiguities are resolved through military crises. And during the Cold War, there was a period of ambiguity, and it was resolved through crises: the Berlin airlift, and then the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the world almost came uh, to nuclear confrontation because of some ambiguities that were that that were still in place in the early stages of the Cold War. So. I think that basically uh, the United States simply has to, at some point, be very clear about what its position on Taiwan is. Um, and until that happens, you know, there is a risk that we have a crisis to resolve that remaining Cold War era ambiguity. And by the way, where does the policy of strategic ambiguity come from? It comes from the fact that U.S. and China were allies against the Soviet Union uh, after Nixon went to China. And so this was an unresolved issue between friends as they faced a common enemy. And so when you when you think about that, you know, you, this dynamic of ambiguity as it relates to Taiwan, I think is actually one that is very important to me um, as well. And I, I would highlight that we have not really had this type of ambiguity for a very, very long time, right? 96 was kind of the last time there was any question about it. Um, prior to that, there were debates in the United States. You mentioned Nixon. Nixon you know, had a hugely negative impact in the 1960 election against Kennedy because he expressed a desire to protect the um, somewhat irrelevant islands that actually exist across the, the Taiwan Strait, right, that are as close as 10 miles away from the Chinese mainland. Effectively, Nixon wanted to commit troops in the event of Chinese hostile action. And Kennedy basically said, no, not, not not really important, right? That was enough for Americans who were exhausted after Korea and various other components. Now, the irony of Vietnam, of course, <laughs> under, under Kennedy um, is not lost on me. It's a huge irony, yes. But Americans were tired of fighting abroad. It kind of feels like that's more than anything else what's driving this ambivalence towards Taiwan, that it is politically unacceptable to say, no, absolutely, we're going to send uh, the sons and daughters of the United States over to defend Taiwan in the event that it is attacked from a much, much, much larger player that's you know 90 miles away, right, as compared to us being 3,000 plus miles away. Would you come to a similar conclusion that the U.S. is just tired? I would, yes, I would. And I mean, look, I don't mean to prescribe policy because I, I don't do that in a my book is filled with references to nihilism, you know, because you have to kind of bathe yourself in indifference. Right. Um, I, I think there's two parts of ambiguity, though. You're, you're focusing on the one that I think is the most important, which is what is the level of commitment the U.S. would have to defending Taiwan? But there's another yep. one, which is what is the policy of the U.S. towards 
Taiwanese independence. And I think the, the way that the situation can be resolved, or at least made more clear to both sides, is that the U.S. can spell out precisely what kind of support it would have, but also can spell out that it doesn't support Taiwanese independence. And in that way, the status quo could be preserved, as an example, just to be very clear on both sides. And that hasn't been happened. That hasn't happened. Uh, and I think that is that source of risk. And that's why I have the probability on my kind of U-shaped you know, probability curve of mm -hmm. crisis higher right now, because I think we could have a crisis over Taiwan over the next six to 12 months, not a war, just a crisis that leads us to the political path of least resistance, which I think would be what I just voiced, where the U.S. would, you know, kind of cite, okay, well, here is what we would do about Taiwan. You know, mm -hmm. maybe not send sons and daughters, as you point out, but like there can be an economic blockade, we can increase costs, but also, you know, Taipei, sorry, but you're just not going to be independent. We're, that's not a line we're going to cross. And that is kind of a, an equilibrium which I can see us getting to. I just don't think we're there yet. And that's where I think there are some risks to this conflict. And by the way, Mike, going back to the charts I show, showed on, you know, 19th century and interwar, my point about the, this whole issue is, and this is sometimes people, you know, can, can mis, misinterpret, the view that economic relationship continues is in no way, in no way, an argument that there cannot be conflict. And in fact, the whole point of the charts is that, yes, Germany and the UK continue to trade, but then they did have a war. Right. And so that's where uh, we need to separate. And this is difficult for, I think, investors because we continuously use Cold War as an analogy, which is a mistake. Cold War yep. really did have purely bifurcated economic systems. We can continue to have very enmeshed economic relationship, even though the threat of conflict is rising or falling, independent of that economic relationship. It's similar to a phase change, right? And so I actually am using the exact same um, analogy when I have my discussions with investors, that it feels like what we've returned to is the great game of the 19th century, right? Yeah. And so you're effectively forced into one of two theorists from a Western perspective. There are other theorists from, a, from an Eastern perspective, but certainly from the Western perspective, you're kind of brought into the world of um, Albert Mahan or Alfred uh, Harold Mackinder, right? And so Mackinder is the whole world island type framework where what's really going on exactly as you're saying is, is that there are um, there, there's a Nash equilibrium that exists on Eurasia as an entity, right? That you have multiple players where you use the phrase, it's complicated, you know, you effectively um, referred to, to the equivalent of the phrase, it's complicated, right? Because your allies are constantly going to defect and then ally again, right? So Real Vision viewers are familiar with my discussion um, with Taylor Fravel, where I highlighted the dynamic that China and Russia, for example, can't have a stable partnership. Um, India and China can't have a stable partnership. India and the Middle East can't have a stable partnership. The Middle East and Europe can't have a stable partnership, right? Turkey sits astride the two, for example, constantly struggling. Is it part of Europe or is it part of the Middle East, right? What is it? What, what is its role that it wants to have? But because they all have borders with each other and because they all face effectively, effectively the existential threat if any one player grows too strong, there's constantly this desire to defect, right? And at the same time, that applies to the relationships with the US, which is 
functionally an interloper in this process, right? We don't really have a seat at the table other than the fact that we are globally the, you know, still the dominant military power and hegemon, but China's rise is causing more and more countries to be forced to say, how important is my relationship with the US relative to my relationship with other players? And that's effectively what you're arguing is, is that in a multipolar world, not even a, a bipolar world, which is really what the Cold War was all about, where you had you know players largely aligning onto the Soviet sphere or to the US sphere, here it's becoming much more, well, I'm kind of my own sphere, right? And I need to do what's best for me under each of these conditions. And sometimes that's gonna mean cooperating and sometimes that's gonna mean fighting. When you think about how that resolves, it usually resolves with a fight inside the sphere, right? So, you know, we tend to focus a lot on China and the United States, but is there more risk of effectively conflict within Eurasia than there is between China and the United States at minimum on a proxy basis? I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. You know, I think you've articulated uh, this this entire dynamic extremely well. And I mean, I, I don't really have anything to add. Do it for a living. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, and, and I, I mean, look, I, I don't think the odds of a kind of a Eurasian war are higher, but I think uh, they are much higher than the expectations. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I think I'm more optimistic about the alignment of interests of China and Russia, maybe than you are, in, in part the biggest... Uh, you know, like one of the biggest fears in, in the Soviet Union about China was this kind of deluge of migrants that would seep across the borders into eastern Siberia. Uh, that's obviously like patently ludicrous to think of today. That's just not going to happen. Like no, <laughs> no Chinese person is going to want to live in eastern Siberia in 2021. China is advancing. It's growing. It's innovating. Um, so, you know, that has reduced some of the tensions. Also, I think the two economies are quite complementary. China is a commodity importer. Uh, it's also importer of military technology, and Russia is more than willing to provide China with those two. So I think that there are complementarities, but I think that you raise a very you raise a very important point, which is that the U.S. itself, I think, is going to figure out at some point in the near future that if we really are in this complicated 19th century, what I call swashbuckling world of buccaneers, if we really are in this world then, you know, why is the U.S. pinning itself into a corner of painting China as the greatest rival? Like, I mean, it clearly is the number one rival to the U.S., but it doesn't mean that in five or 10 years, it won't make sense to create temporary alliances on temporary uh, issues that might arise. And that's the world we're in today. And I think a lot of American policymakers, American op-ed writers, and American investors are ignoring this reality and kind of overly focusing on just the U.S.-China dynamic. 
So from my perspective, I, I think it's really interesting, a couple of things that you said there. The first is this idea of Chinese immigrants into Siberia, which you hit on that as, as kind of a non-issue. But my understanding is, is that it's actually become quite a significant issue, that many areas around the border that Russia is actually growing increasingly concerned by effectively the signification of those regions. Now, I agree it's very complementary and it's currently driven by the trade dynamics. But when you say um, I'm less or you're more hopeful about the, the China-Russia relationship, I actually would just flip it and say I'm, I'm more hopeful from my perspective and that I don't think it's a sustainable relationship, right? I think that, that it's one of the reasons that the U.S. ends up winning. I agree with you, by the way, that it's a little bit of a caricature that the U.S. is saying China is the worst threat. I, I would flip that and say, well, we're actually our own worst threat, right? Um, the only thing that beats the United States in my analysis is that we fracture. And that, I think, is where it becomes really powerful to think about the role of China and Russia currently, because it seems like they're working really hard and contributing to a narrative that encourages the fractionalization of the United States. That's That, to me, is certainly less important from a dollars and cents on an immediate standpoint, but ultimately strikes me as the much bigger story, very similar to the dynamics of the growth of the, of the uh, U.S. Communist Party in the 1930s and the need for um, fracture with the Soviet Union following Yalta, et cetera. Right? They were our allies in World War II in, in a, an uncomfortable framework, but we certainly traded the heck out of that relationship and contributed to their reindustrialization. But it seems to me that that what we're actually fighting through is that internal dialogue rather than any legitimate threat from China. Is that what's what's your reaction to that? Because it, it strikes me as very hard for China to become a legitimate threat to the United States. So I think that uh, the number one macro story for the next decade is not really the China U.S. conflict. You know, okay. I, think, I, I think there are constraints on this. Um, I agree. You know, so what is it? What is it? What, I think the number one macro thesis, and so the number one macro chart, like 2031, when we have this conversation, when we look backwards and we say, hey, what was the most important chart for the 2020s? I think it's this one. Uh, and it basically shows, what this chart shows is the share uh, of the economy going to the top 10% of the income. So it shows the UK, France, and the US. Yep. And it's basically telling you that in the 1950s and 60s, the U.S. and France basically were equivalent in terms of level of redistribution. And then something happened in the 1960s where France committed to much more aggressive redistribution of wealth. The U.S. in the 1980s, of course, had the Reagan-Thatcher revolution. And so we had this uh, expansion of what we call income inequality, in this case, measured by, again, the, the share of the economy going to the top 10% of income. The UK is also on the chart just for illustrative purposes because it shows that the United Kingdom was actually the most quote unquote socialist of the developed market economies in 50s and 60s. And if you're a fan of like the crown, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you, you see this, the 50s and 60s in the United Kingdom were very tough times. So you then have this bifurcation where the UK and the US pursue laissez-faire, Washington consensus policies, France goes the other way. Now, a couple of things that I want to point out here. 
The reason I show this chart is because we need to break with the stereotypes that are really uh, an impediment for investors when we think about the future. What I mean by this is like French are socialists, Americans and British are capitalists. This is not, this is not true. And not, ju not just on some sort of a century level data, like on, in decade terms, these things oscillate. Policies mm -hmm. oscillate. And I think that we have reached a point in the United States where I think politicians from both left and the right realize that as you point out eloquently, like, you know, like the biggest risk to the U.S. is social cohesion. And so how, how do you grease the wheels of this social cohesion? And I think it's the abandonment of the Washington consensus. It's the abandonment of laissez-faire economics. Uh, we are in the middle of what I call in the book and what I called uh, last time we talked, I think last year, the Buenos Aires consensus, where U.S. policies, macroeconomic policies, are beginning to asymptotically approximate that of Argentina. We're not going to become Argentina. I'm not talking about hyperinflation or collapse of the dollar, you know. But we are adopting policies that are going to basically generate higher nominal GDP outcomes, no matter what. And Republicans taking over the Senate or the House or the presidency in 2024, I couldn't care less. I don't care who's in charge because the median voter has spoken and they want these policies. So I think that this chart that I'm showing is. Like what happened to France in the 60s, and by the way, in the 60s, who was in power in France? It wasn't the socialists. It was the center-right goalists. So it was the center-right goalists who pursued these policies of redistribution. I think we're about to see that in the U.S. as well. Um, you know, China is kind of ancillary to this process. Russia, Middle East. This is really about domestic cohesion, as you point out. Um, and we're just going to have to grease the wheels of cohesion through, you know, quite profligate and quite uh, what most investors would consider left-leaning policies going forward, which includes monetary policy unorthodox. So I, I, I actually agree with that. And I think it, um, again, the focus back on the 19th century, I think becomes an important one because if you had asked a British royal in 1900 who their biggest enemy was, right? They probably would have answered something like Germany or France. Um, they would have, you know, referred to them as Hessians, and, uh, you know, or as, uh, you know, some form of barbarian as compared to a German national per se. Um, the unification of Germany was relatively recent, right? Um, and what it, what I actually think they might have pointed to, certainly within a few years, was actually the Bolsheviks or the communists or the anarchists. Um, it was the alternate political schools of thought that were broadly represented by these different nation states, right? So, you know, the dynamics of fascism that emerged in Germany and socialism that emerged in the Soviet Union and corporatism slash fascism that emerged in Italy um, you know, I, I currently am, am reading a book called The Three New Deals that compares the difference between FDR, uh, Mussolini, and Hitler's programs of economic rejuvenation. You know, yeah, for sure. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm looking for. That, you know, went in very, very different directions, but the primary objective is exactly what you're describing. It effectively is how do I get buy-in from the great unwashed as compared to the elites? Right. And that that does feel like that is the center of the conflict that exists today, not the geopolitical one. It's the internal fracture that, that seems at the center. Yeah. I mean, you know, nothing really to add there. I think it's a great I think we should all read that book because it's a great point. 
I mean, uh, rearmament kind of helped uh, ultimately spur some of these fiscal plans, but they were in place before. Why? Well, because the Great Depression was the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't have the Great Depression in 2008, and as the COVID recession proved, we will not have a Great Depression ever again. Why? Because policymakers are not going to double down on austerity midway through a recession. Like the, that world is just gone um, because we don't have like top hat elites, you know, running running the world. But we did have a very prolonged, tepid Charlie Brown cycle where everyone was kind of depressed, and that was the secular stagnation of the last decade. And so policymakers, you know, this Buenos Aires consensus is not about the pandemic. It's, it's really about policymakers reacting to the last decade. Uh, and that's where the turn against austerity came from. Um, so I have this joke, you know, I, I tell everyone I talk to, like hedge fund managers, institutional investors, look, if you think the fiscal stimulus we just had over the past, you know, 12 months is about the pandemic, then, you know, I've got a 10-year bond yielding 1.7% to sell you. If you think, <laughs> if you think, that the extraordinary level of fiscal stimulus, they will come, I mean, we'll continue like with infrastructure, more spending. If you think that was about the pandemic, then you know what? Buy bonds right now. Buy long-term, long-dated bonds right now. And I, I think the answer is it's not about the pandemic. You know, the, this framework that I've had precedes the pandemic. One of the, I got lucky having this framework because when the pandemic hit, you know, um, I realized very quickly that there would be an extraordinary fiscal stimulus. And I think that it continues and it's rooted in the social cohesion issue. So what does it mean for investors? Well, I think what it means for investors is that we're kind of in a similar situation uh, to the 60s and 70s, but turbocharged. And what I mean is we don't have to go to the 19th century or the 1930s, although I really, really like that parallel. I think even the 60s are similar to this, Mike. Why? Because we had in the U.S., um, you know, we, we had a bout of inflation basically in late 40s, early 50s. And then kind of mid-50s, inflation rose again. But for the most part, 1960s, 1960 to 1967, 8, was a period of secular stagnation. Inflation was very muted. And policymakers talked about, oh, where's inflation? It's nowhere to be seen. They became complacent. And they sought to, um, to deal with domestic civil strife. So we had social unrest in the U.S. throughout the 60s and late 60s in particular, both because of the Vietnam War and because of civil rights. Um, and, and racial injustice, very similar to today. The parallel was policymakers just said like, well, you know, inflation is tamed. We seem to be existing in this deflationary context of secular stagnation. Let's just do pro-cyclical fiscal spending. So the first time the U.S. had kind of pro-cyclical fiscal spending uh, before Donald Trump was elected and passed the tax cuts, the first time was really in 1968 and onwards. And I think that we're in a very similar context. So what do investors do with this information? Well, first of all, it's not going to be negative over the next two years. This is why you know, I continue to be quite bullish on cyclicals and, and risk assets. I think that over the next two years, you're going to ha- continue to have higher nominal GDP growth than expected, although we're probably peaked in terms of this, this moment right now. The expectations are already priced in. They're, they're very high. Uh, but I do think that the growth will continue to be ample. And I think that inflation will stay relatively muted by kind of like, you know, the contextual deflationary context that we're in. So you have a period of 12 to 24 months in which growth and inflation can both be bullish. They can both kind of create a Goldilocks 
uh, situation. But I worry about where this is going to take us from 2023 onwards, because I doubt the ability of the Fed to actually get hawkish in this environment, especially once that fiscal thrust turns negative. And I think that's when you could start to see some of the stagflationary environment of the 70s, not in the same egregious way, but you know, uh, much faster than people think. So this makes me think that the current cycle or expansion we're in is going to be shorter, it's going to be faster, and it's going to be very difficult for people to get tactically bearish in meaningful ways because we've got another 12 to 24 months during which to kind of generate the returns. It's interesting because um, I, I happen to very much like the analogy of the, 19, the, the late 19th century into the early 20th century as distinct from the 1960s. And, and the, the reason I grow concerned with comparisons to the 1960s is because the 1960s inflation for me was largely driven by demographics, right? Effectively the expansion on a global basis of the population that demanded things. We saw this in the United States, we saw it in the developed world in the form of Europe, we saw it emerging in the developing world, particularly with the Green Revolution in places like India, et cetera, that radically expanded populations, right? The introduction of vaccines for polio, smallpox, et cetera, that, and tuberculosis cures, et cetera, that ultimately changed the characteristics of people dying at a young age and led to an unprecedented expansion in the global population over the course of the 20th century. In my analysis, that's more than anything else what drove the inflation. And the minute that peaked and began to decelerate in the late 1970s is when the inflation peaked and began to decelerate. Um, today, if I look at where we are kind of on a global basis, particularly as I go to places like China, it strikes me as really hard to have a sustained increase in consumption because the population's beginning to contract, right? And so the need for the investment, the need for the, the production supply expansion, et cetera, um, loses a significant fraction of its, of its impetus. How would you respond to that pushback? on the analogy of the late 1960s? Well, I think that's why I'm not super bearish, you know, because I think context remains quite deflationary in many ways. You know, you're highlighting demographics. I think you could talk about technology, automation. Um, my view on US-China economic relationships suggests globalization won't just end, right? right. It will still have, it'll just be less efficient. So as you said, two medium pizzas, not one big one, but not like no pizza. So right. I think I think that's fair what you're saying. I just think that the 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 kind of leftward to kind of use a simple term, leftward turn in US policies in terms of unorthodoxy is profound. And so even in a deflationary context where there's secular forces that are deflationary, you can have smaller inflationary overshoots. And so that's where I would find a compromise be, be, between your view which yeah. I think is very like you know, like definitely true empirically, and it's it's cogent and, and secular in nature, and my much more uh, of a cyclical view. And one thing I would add is I, I don't think we can forget the unorthodox fiscal and monetary policy of the late 60s and 70s, particularly the U.S. did abandon, you know, the gold standard, which had anchored the dollar. The, the Nixon shock was important. The dollar was devalued with the Smithsonian Agreement. So there were other things going on at the time that exacerbated the inflationary qualities of demographics, which you're focusing in on. 
And I think that we will have similarly unorthodox outcomes right now, uh, just that the kind of inflationary outcomes will be capped by some of the secular themes you're, you're talking about. So there's kind of a middle ground, I think, between the two views. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. Um, so now if we were to think, I want you to take the Buenos Aires consensus a little bit more broadly and define it. We, we talked about this last time, and as you alluded to, it's not that we're becoming Argentina and we're moving to hyperinflation, but instead it's this dynamic of the, the, the lower ends of the um, population from an income and consumption standpoint. And I think that last part is actually really critical to understand consumption is distinct from income. Yeah, You're suggesting effectively that that has been the constrained component of our population and our consumption factor for the good part of two decades, right? Ever since we effectively shut off access to credit for subprime individuals in a lot of ways or reduced the access to credit that characterized the first decade of the 2000s. When we ease that, is your expectation then effectively that we're going to see consumption rise significantly? So effectively, a sub portion of the population will now begin consuming at a much higher level relative to its production capability. Is that is that a fair interpretation of what you're suggesting? I would say that the last cycle had a number of deflationary variables. You, you illustrated two. One is demographics. The other one is the secular stagnation produced by this kind of balance sheet recession narrative where households were deleveraging. Um, yep. There's also globalization, technology, and so on. I would say that other than technology, other than technology, I think that you're having on the margin a reversal of a lot of the deflationary factors. So yes, I do think that you know lower income levels will have a higher propensity to, they have a higher propensity to consume. They will get, uh, the, you know, they will consume more. We just had a recession in which incomes rose mm -hmm. for the first time, I think, in human history. That happened, <laughs> like human history, that we had a recession, unemployment goes up, incomes go up at the same time. Uh, I think you will see that's one of the reversals. The, the, uh, the private sector, including corporate, but focusing on households, which is what you're focusing on, is not going to see the kind of deleveraging it saw in the last cycle. Uh, cycle. Globalization will not end. It peaked, but it will marginally be less deflationary because we will start seeing inefficiencies in certain sectors uh, of, of tradable goods. And one thing that we're not talking about, and I think this is very important, but it's very difficult for me to provide you with empirical evidence, unfortunately, it's just anecdotal, mm -hmm. is there is also a political zeitgeist we need to be aware of, where you know uh, Amazon is dealing with a unionization effort in Alabama. Totally agree. State level uh, minimum wage efforts are passing. Like, look at Florida. Donald Trump did extremely well in the Florida election. In the state of Florida, he outperformed polls more so than in many other states. But the state also passed a $15 minimum wage uh, bill. So I think that you will start seeing more and more of this kind of political zeitgeist creep into the corporate C suite, where it's going to be very difficult, I think, for CEOs to ignore wage pressures. And that's kind of a double-edged sword for your demographic issue too. I mean, yes, there's less people consuming, but also there's less people saving. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also less labor force. Last In the last cycle, baby boomers extended their retirement dates because their 401ks got nuked in 2009. They're too old to do that this time around. And so we will lose a large chunk of the labor pool. 
And I think that will add to wage pressures as well. So that's something to watch. Um, it's it's a very low conviction forecast, unfortunately, you know, but I do think political zeitgeist does matter in, in those ways as well. When you think about this dynamic of um, underspending or of uh, targeting that group for an expansion of consumption, is there a way that you can track what you think the capacity for them expanding consumption is? Like if, if you were to do the math and say, you know, the U.S. government runs significant surpluses for an extended period of time with the transfers going not to banks in the form of uh, interest on excess reserves, but instead going to individuals in the form of a universal basic income, et cetera. Do we have a sense for how much you could see developed market demand expand under those types of frameworks? Is there a way to think about it? Is that the right way to think about it in your mind? I think it's one of the ways we have to think about it. I think ultimately it comes down to forecasting, you know, how much the savings rate is going to continue to go down. Now, it's already come down quite a bit, but it's off of its, you know, 8 7% level uh, at pre-crisis levels. Um, and I think that's, you know, obviously going to be difficult to forecast, but we're starting to see some data points that suggest that there is this uh, appetite for consumption of large items. So durable good consumption. My goodness. It took us like, what, 12 years to recover from the last crisis? It took like two months this time around. Second, house prices. Demand for housing is, is through the roof. And I, I think, you know, it, it's not enough. It's a low conviction view, but we are starting to see nibbles of data that suggests that households are willing to, to buy stuff. Uh, now, there is one risk, which is that real estate prices are quite high in the US. And so there is a possibility that, you know, folks, especially kind of uh, in the 30 to 40 age group, delay buying homes because of high, you know, uh, down payments and continue to kind of invest the money instead, save it, except mm -hmm. save not necessarily in productive ways. Um, so that's, you know, that is a risk, of course. But, you know, data thus far suggests quite robust demand for durable goods and housing. If I think about what happens next, right, what, like what would, because, you know, one of the things I wrote a piece in, in March of last year, also bullish, similar to, to your outlook at that point. Mine was more built around the market structure framework, right? As long as money continues to flow into passive vehicles, my model has valuations continuing to expand the market inelasticity continuing to rise effectively it forces security prices higher. And I don't need kind of the fundamental dynamic, although the positive contribution is the protection of jobs, which we had in spades in 2020, right? That contributes to the flow of savings into financial markets in a variety of ways. But if I think about what happens next in your world, is it a two and a half trillion dollar stimulus on infrastructure coming out of the Biden administration that drives unemployment to unfathomably low levels? Is it um, Europe deciding that it's going to reduce the private sector surplus and repurpose that towards significant spending? I mean, we've not seen Europe, we're seeing less support in a lot of ways than we are in the United States. It's been a less dramatic change. Um, but what comes next in kind of your model? So I think first and foremost, I think a lot of the growth surprises, as we discussed, are already you know, priced in. I think now a lot of the bears have cleared out 
and we clearly have this incredible growth overshoot. I do expect more fiscal spending. I think the yeah. Democrats, as I said, the most uh, meaningful macro chart is one of U.S. becoming like France in the 60s, where we're going to try to stop here in the U.S. 75 years of European-style redistribution in the next two years. I think the Biden administration, um, you know, there's a lot of bitterness in, in, in terms of how they missed their chance with Obama. I think mm-hmm. there's a sense that they uh, tried to collaborate too much with the Republicans, that by 2010, the Tea Party came in and kind of shut the door. Um, and so they need to do everything they can in the next 18 to 24 months. And so I think politically, we are going to continue to see surprises to the upside on fiscal. I just don't think it's market meaningful anymore because this is now, I think, accepted by most uh, investors. I think the bigger I- issue right now that I'm seeing in conversations with, uh, with hedge fund managers and so on is the sense that the Fed is still orthodox. I think there's still a sense and reverence for Paul Volcker. And yep. I, you know, I, I come from a different world. I come from the world of politics. And to me, Paul Volcker is, was a man of the time. And what time was he in? Well, he was in a world where, you know, you had a decade of secular uh, of stagflation. You had a decade of stagflationary outcomes that moved the median voter in the United States away from demand side policies and towards the laissez-faire. That's why we had the reagan Thatcher revolution. We had it because the median voters, including your demographic point of baby boomers coming to their most productive tax, higher tax paying years, decided that they needed less government. But that revolution allowed Paul Volcker to basically raise interest rates and cause a recession and cause an employment to go up. Like He was an unelected technocrat that crushed the economy for the sake of crushing inflation, and he wasn't tarred and feathered for it. I don't think we're in that world. So when I see that the market is pricing in three rate hikes in 2023, I think that's a mistake, especially yeah. because fiscal policy, by the way, is going to turn, at some point it has to turn negative, even though we're in this new Buenos Aires consensus, just you've set such a high watermark, you can't keep up with yeah. it. So, yeah. you, so I'm supposed to believe that in 2023, given the social cohesion problems, income inequality, social unrest, civil rights issues, I'm supposed to believe that ahead of the next general election, a Biden appointed head of the Central Bank of the United States of America is going to raise interest rates three times? Like, no way. Like, there's no way that's going to happen. Growth is going to come down to more meaningful levels, maybe even sub 2%. Why would the Fed raise rates at all at that point? And so this is what I think comes next. Mike, I think too many investors are looking at the current Fed and think and, and like ignoring what they're telling us. They're telling us that they have broken with orthodoxy. They've been telling us that since last year in Jackson Hall. They've been telling us when they when they start looking at unemployment through a much more complicated lens that brings in you know unemployment rates for different minority groups and so on. They're telling you that they're completely hand in hand in the business of generating nominal GDP growth outcomes. And so that's what I would say is what's next. And, and so how is that meaningful for investors? Well, it's meaningful because right now the dollar is rallying and the dollar is rallying for you know good reason. There's growth differentials. Europe has bungled the vaccines. China has slowed down. The dollar has this bid now as the growth differential narrative grabs attention of investors. Uh, you know, there's a French election coming down the pipeline where Marine Le Pen will make another run for it. There's all sorts of kind of concerns about Europe and and Japan and China. 
But I think if I'm right and the Federal Reserve is 100% behind the Treasury and 100% in the Buenos Aires unorthodoxy, then it's difficult for me to be sustainably bullish on the dollar. I am mixed on that. Um, I think it, it always becomes important how we define the dollar, right? So if the dollar is um, the DXY contract and so largely struck against you know, 57% euro, for example, uh, th then I, I agree with you, it's hard, right? Because the trade dynamics are quite significant. But if I look at it on a broader basis, if I think about the inclusion of EM, is this an environment that you see as positive for EM because of the commodity cycle? Or is this an environment that you think is very mixed for EM? Because a lot of the development in a race to zero heads back to the developed worlds, right? You, you build those chains where effectively, how important is Africa in this, in this equation? Africa and America. You know, this is where we come to the real big question. I think it depends. I think some of the manufacturing Asian emerging markets that have done really well in the last cycle relative to their EM peers that were commodity focused, I think are going to struggle. I agree with you. There's marginally more protectionism. There is some onshoring. Um, the geopolitical risks are higher in East Asia than they are anywhere else. But I think like Latin America is likely to do very well in this world. Um, I think commodities should continue to do well. I think tactically there's risks like the copper, uh, which has just kind of run ahead with this EV theme, even though, you know, like it's a decade long theme. <laughs> exactly. It's like the uranium shortages predicted in 2016. Yes, I'm, yes. I'm familiar with it. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm bullish on commodities, including copper, but it's kind of like, wait, hold on a second, guys, time out. I think uh, that's why I'm, I'm focused so much on the dollar, because these are the questions I'm trying to answer. I do think that I think next uh, five years are going to be good for commodity producing uh, EMs for two reasons. One, I do think sustainability, green tech, um, writ large, is the greatest theme for investors over the next decade. And, you know, we're, we're already coming to, to an hour of our talk, so we don't have necessarily that much time to articulate it. But um, I don't think it's just about climate change being a meaningful issue. I think it's also that we're talking about policymakers having to generate nominal GDP growth. Well, how do you do that? You can't just give everyone a check, or you need kind of mission-driven spending. And clearly, we've seen in China, in Japan, Europe, and in the U.S., that kind of green tech spending is one way to do this. So it is a way to articulate the Buenos Aires consensus on orthodoxy and fiscal policy. The second issue that I think uh, most investors ignore is that the technologies we're talking about, and not just EVs or batteries, but large-scale industrial batteries that allow you to adopt alternative energy in a meaningful way, these technologies are highly geopolitically significant. And they become a national security issue for the US. So I will guarantee to the viewers here that in 2024, a Republican candidate for president of the United States of America is not going to hold up you know, uh, a nugget of coal and say that they're going to protect the industry. They're going to say that we have a battery gap with China, like the missile gap we had with Soviet Union. So this becomes actually, a lot of these technologies become national security issues, which means that the tailwinds behind them are not ideological. It's not about saving the planet, although, of course, that is one of the reasons. It's also about politics and geopolitics. Um, and I think uh, commodities are going to benefit from this. So to your question about Africa, it's, a, it's kind of like a layup for me here, you know, because I think Africa becomes extremely meaningful in this world. So does Latin America. 
a lot of the countries that we're talking about that are going to benefit from this produce metals that we haven't really been excited about for a long time. So think about the Congo. You know, the Katanga province produces almost all of the world's cobalt. Uh, a lot of the mines there are controlled by China. It's going to become a national security issue for the U.S. to secure cobalt production going forward. Same with nickel, same with lithium. Latin America suddenly gets a bid as well. So I do think that um, this thesis is going to continue. I think it's going to be good for emerging markets. But I do think that in some pockets of the markets, such as, you know, like EV prices in the public markets, or copper, the thesis has gotten a little ahead of its skis. It doesn't mean that it's not right, though. I mean, I think it's an interesting challenge, right? Um, you know, I'm always drawn to, again, going back to the, the, the transition from the 19th to the 20th century, right? The most strategic asset in the early part of the 20th century was natural rubber, right? So rubber plantations throughout Southeast Asia uh, became a primary objective for military adventurism, whether that was colonialism or Japan um, engaged in its own form of colonialism. I, I can't help but wonder if we're looking at something very similar here, where effectively Absolutely. the dollar values are so high um, and the impact of it is so important that you have two separate developments that are working. One is substitution, so reducing or replacing cobalt in a battery formulation. Same thing for copper, et cetera, right? Moving to smaller wires or superconducting wires, various other solutions will ultimately emerge in the same way that synthetic rubber replaced natural rubber. But the second is, is that the, the incentive to cheat and to defect against your own population becomes so high, effectively the wages of corruption rise, right? It becomes better for you to be a bad dictator uh, salting away money in Bitcoin or various other cryptocurrencies in the way that you might have done historically into a Swiss bank account if you were idiom in, right? Do the people of these regions win or do you think that it is a, is there a power grab that effectively results in adverse consequences for the individuals while geopolitically they become more relevant? I think it's going to depend on the country and those yeah. with better governance and institutions. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a big subscriber to the kind of Asimoglu, Robinson, why nations fail paradigm. And I think there are emerging market economies that are trying their best to improve these. Indonesia is one good example. I, I flagged this for people. This is also sitting on my desk. Oh, well, so. there you go. <laughs> I mean, that's a must read. I mean, if you're in it, emerging markets. I totally agree. You know, and, and I think there are countries that are trying to do this meaningfully, like Indonesia has tried to um, improve its governance. Um, there's countries that have not done it at all. Uh, and so I think it will depend. Uh, and it depends. Look, Cold War was a good example of what you're talking about. I mean, really Cold War was a great, great era for Latin America as an example for Africa as well. Many of these countries saw their heyday in like late 60s and 70s. Um, it's been kind of downhill since then. And in fact, a lot of the enthusiasm about Africa was about the absolute number of middle class. But relative to population, many of them saw the peaks in middle class as percent of population in the Cold War era. Um, so I think your point is very, very good. Like it's difficult to say in broad terms, is it going to benefit the median person in, in emerging markets and frontier markets? I think it's going to depend um, on a country. But for investors, it does mean that emerging markets have become more interesting. And I think frontier markets as well. And I think there's really interesting opportunities 
when you think about how to, uh, you know, how to invest based on this thesis, um, whether it's mining, whether it's commodities, whether it's private markets, um, because I think the technological innovation that's going to flow out of this effort is astronomical. I mean, I, I brought a chart for you that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek chart here, and it's just a two-bar bar chart, which many of the folks who used to read me will know I'm a big fan of this. It's like a punch in the face. It's very easy to obviously make. It, it's kind of funny. It's, it's meant to be hilarious. It's not really right. Uh, but I show basically the, uh, the dollars committed to global green initiatives across the major economies. It's about $4 trillion over the next decade. And then I put together every human endeavor ever undertaken and priced those endeavors, how much they cost, and inflation adjusted. So although I think this is a hilarious chart, my team did not think it was hilarious when they were trying to inflation adjust the, the Great Wall of China. Right. And as you can see, like, obviously, it's a comical chart. It's not serious. But the point I'm trying to make is that you know, the effort that is behind this technology and this endeavor of fighting climate change and becoming more sustainable and, and generating technological innovation in this space is unparalleled to anything we've ever had. The Manhattan Project, the interstate highway system of the US, the Apollo program. There is going to be innovation in this space. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you should go out and just buy green tech in public markets. A lot of this, as I said, is already, already bid up. But the policy thrust behind it is immense. It's not purely ideological. It's not just about fighting climate change. There's national security reasons and politics behind this as well. And I compare this to the moonshot. You know, I, I think uh, when investors look back and think about the moonshot, putting the man on the moon was one of the most wasteful efforts we've ever done because we never went back. I mean, it was clearly useless to put a human being on the moon. It was clearly useless. It didn't accomplish anything. We never went back. We didn't find anything. We kicked dirt around and flew back. But that effort alone led to innovation that we're coasting on right now. And I think that uh, what's happening right now with sustainability and green tech is, is very similar to that, except the scale is much larger because the numbers, the figures committed are much greater. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. I think that's going to be an interesting one. Um, I haven't seen the chart, so I look forward to seeing it. And I, and I look forward to having it shared with our viewers. Uh, I can envision what it is. And it becomes kind of this interesting question of what's the right way to think about scaling it? Is it by inflation? Is it by a PPP type framework, which would raise the you know value of the Great Wall of China certainly much more than an inflation adjustment would, for example? That's right. The, the human labor content of the Great Wall will almost certainly eclipse the Green Revolution, um, certainly relative to the quantity of human labor that was available at the time. The pyramids of Egypt, similar, right? Yeah. So, and then the kind of interesting question for me is, does it become equally wasteful, right? Is replacing coal with green replacements, is that particularly valuable, right? Um you know, we've had Josh Wolf on here many times. Josh talks eloquently about the dynamics of the only green revolution that can really occur is a nuclear revolution. Effectively, you know, 
we need to pursue energy density, not just energy replacement, if we're going to really raise productivity. For me, that feels like the more interesting story behind the green revolution is that ultimately it's going to become bound by the limitations of productivity. And you're going to see a rotation away from things like uh, hydro and solar and um, uh, you know, wind power, even natural gas for that matter, and towards the much more dense nuclear type solutions. When that happens, I'm completely with you that it becomes kind of a holy cow, this becomes incredible. Um, but that still feels a pretty far way off. Is that? No, I would disagree. I mean, I think you don't, I mean, you do definitely still need base load power. So we all agree on that. But if you have industrial size solution to battery store, to energy storage, it's, it's okay to have a bunch of little windmills that stop, you know, spinning. Like, that's fine. If you can store that energy somehow on an industrial scale, uh, with loss, with a relatively you know modest loss of efficiency of that storage, uh, then that becomes possible. So how do you do that? Well, there's technologies that are emerging. LNG technology is being used, for example, to liquefy just air, and then to basically regasify it and use that process to then generate right. the electricity. So similar to a water battery or a hydro dam, et cetera. You yeah, hydro dam, of course, is the perfect way. You just push water right. up the hill and then you throw it down when you need the electricity. Uh, so I mean, that would be meaningful game changer because then the whole like narrative, like, well, the sun stopped shining and you, you, don't, you can't generate power. Well, no, like you can, unless the sun stops shining for like months. Um, and look, I think, I think this, is, this is the fun part of this, Mike. I think we don't know where it goes, just like we yeah. didn't know where the moonshot was going to go. Uh, and I think investors just have to start digging into this, even if they don't like it. That would be my message. You know, don't approach this ideologically like, oh, you know, this or that. I think, look, I think the way to approach this is that policymakers have decided to burn through trillions of dollars fighting climate change, whether you like it or not, whether you think these technologies are meaningful or not. I just know that when you throw trillions of dollars at a problem, you're going to have innovation. It's just going to happen. Um, and I think we're at a cusp of, of massive innovation in this space. Um, and I think that a lot of investors have been wired to focus on innovation in the digital space for the last you know two decades SaaS businesses have just crushed it high profit margins you know very scalable low capital input like it's awesome you want to do software and i think that we might get sideswiped because a lot of the money being spent on these initiatives i'm talking about here they're really in the industrial space uh this is uh this is something that i think could surprise a lot of investors who have just kind of written off materials, energy, um, and industrials. Is it wasteful? Is it going to be wasteful? Yeah, there'll, there'll be massive inefficiencies. I mean, you know, one of the consequences of this push to sustainability could be a massive spike in oil prices, an example. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in the near term, 12 to 18 months from now, we could see oil prices at 150 because no man, uh, energy major is going to commit significant resources into um, into you know deep water exploration or really complicated oil uh, extraction, and so it's left to shale to deal with the regular annual depletion rates. Uh, so we could we could see a significant increase in oil prices because of this green push, which is I think counterintuitive to a lot of people. So I actually think that starts to then come into a very interesting framework, right? Because if we if we highlight the dynamics of the moonshot and the moon program. 
there was an incredible, and use the analogy of the 1960s, there was an incredible amount of excitement around computer technology, around semiconductors, around um, trend, you know, the, the general trends of technology in the late 1960s. The lunar program ended, I believe it was 1973, was the last, yeah. uh, the last manned mission. And almost predictably, technology began to underperform relative to commodities, right? And so if the focus is actually on green energy, and we're seeing an unbelievable surge of, as you point out, innovation or surplus going into those sectors with the objective of redefining them. Does that create, I mean, effectively, are you, what you're saying is fade that trade, right? Fade the technology and innovation trade and almost trade the shortage that is, in, that is inevitable to develop on the other side of that. I think over the next 12 to 24 months, yes. Okay. I think commodities, like I said, energy, like oil, yep. could be the greatest beneficiary of this transition in the, in the near term. I think over the long term, you will see massive uh, technological innovation. Now, here's the problem. I think most public market investors are not really thinking about it that way. They're mm-hmm. plowing into the green energy stocks. And the problem for me with this is that, Mike, we don't know if these stocks are MySpace or Facebook. We yeah. just don't know. Mm-hmm. Right, and I would suspect they're kind of MySpacey. I'm not going to name any names, but I think that the current crop of publicly listed, uh, you know, sustainability stocks are not necessarily going to be the future. So I do think there's kind of like a, again, you know, uh, maybe a barbell where you uh, focus initially on these constraints, supply constraints, um, and then I think the way I would invest in this space is in the privates. I think that is the way uh, to go forward because I think the, the Googles and the Netflix and the Amazons of the sustainability revolution are probably still private. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. I don't know the space well enough to comment on the relative quality of those that have come public versus those that remain private. But I would broadly observe that the surge of money into the space via SPACs, et cetera, right, has created conditions where those that are actually playing the trade, um, you know, the the 15 publicly traded now, you know, EV companies that have come out public in the last couple of years, or in the last year, really, that effectively you've set up surplus capital to pursue that innovation, which depresses returns going forward, right? There's the element of, of capital flowing in that causes these extraordinary returns to emerge. If I think about the timing of this, do you, one of the things that you referred to effectively is the shortening of cycles. And it feels like we've actually kind of had that, right? That the dynamics of the cycles, we had an extended great moderation that existed, you know, give or take from, you know, 1982 all the way until uh, the global financial crisis. And now we seem to have this repeating pattern of, yes, asset prices are in aggregate going much higher, but we're seeing much shorter cycles. Right. So the global financial crisis, you know, we had the, the dot com cycle in 2000. And then only seven years later, we had the global financial crisis. And then three years later, as you highlight in your book, Geopolitical Alpha, we had the start of the euro crisis. And then five years later, after that, in 2015, we had the China devaluation and slowdown crisis. And, you know, starting in 2018, we began to experience another significant slowdown in a variety of ways. Right. 
uh, where U.S. corporate profits peaked in, in the fourth quarter of 2018 and haven't recovered, you know, in aggregate, S&P profits a little bit different. You know, now we have this incredible cycle that has been kicked off by extraordinary stimulus and surplus. Does it just get shorter? Are we basically looking at shorter and shorter cycles? I think so. I think so, yeah. for sure. I mean, like, I think that the biggest risk to me is that we end, you know, with some sort of fiscal cliff recession in 2023. I, that's not my main view. That I wouldn't, like, put any money on that view. <laughs> like, it's a low conviction view. I have no ability to call recessions. But, to express that view anyway, but yes. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just like, but, you know, I, I could conceive of that happening. And so I think that absolutely we have shorter cycles. Um, I do think that um, some of the things that are going on in terms of SPACs in the EV space, I think, you know, the problem, Mike, is that I think people are investing in the endpoint instead of in the entire architecture of this new uh, evolution. And what I mean is that this is beyond just EVs. We are changing our means of production. You know, this Marxist term means of production. What, is, what are means of production? It is a uh, set of industrial tools, machines, technology, and managerial pro processes that define an era. So feudalism had its means of production, which weren't really great. Then industrial revolution came, then the second industrial revolution, then the digital revolution. I think we're in a process where our means of production as a human society are changing. We're moving away from this race to scale, where we're producing more with less, to this race to zero, which is not just about carbon, it's about producing less with less. It's instead of producing for the median consumer, for the median student, for the median soldier, we're, we're customizing, we're becoming much better at producing solutions for the tails of the distribution. You know, like, I mean, this isn't just about EVs, it's about agricultural technology, it's about customized drugs for people who need it instead of having an aspirin, for a headache, you can go and you can get a Mike Green, you know, labeled, you know, uh, uh, a drug at, at at your pharmacy. We're entering a old and fat is its primary. Uh, that's the primary benefit of the Mike Green drug. Yeah. So this is this is the evolution I think we're getting to, and I think that um, that's why I do think you're right. Like, there's a lot of money that went into the space in very uncreative ways. It's like, okay, what's the next Tesla? You know, uh, let, let let me do a spec on that. But the the, the Infrastructure that I'm really talking about is much broader. And I think I think in the next 20 years, you know, we could be sitting here in like 2040 talking about the green stack instead of a NASDAQ. I think it's going to be, I'm not sure I agree with you on that, but, you know, you where you and I have disagreed, um, I have to confess that often you've been right. So I, I, I would not put it past that dynamic. Maybe, but what I would say is maybe, but I'm still pretty sure you would have known how to make money better than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we'll see whether that continues to hold to be true. As always, Marco, you've brought me a lot of things to think. You know, it's unusual that somebody um, leaves me with almost more questions after an hour than um, than I started with. There's a, a lot of deep stuff that you've shared. You've shared some materials, which we'll make sure we get into the in, into the presentation um, it, as we. As we step away from this, when do you think we're going to get some clarity around this? When do you think it would be a good time for you and I to revisit this? You know, come back in six months and 12 months. Do you think we'll have a better sense for, for you know, one, we'll have made it kind of past the fear, the initial fear point where 
both you and I look at the Taiwan dynamics, and I think we see a slightly elevated risk right now. I would argue maybe more than slightly. Um, but as we come into kind of the last quarter of, of 2021, do you think we'll be able to get start to get some clarity around how this is developing, or do you think it's too early? I think we talked about three things today. One was the China-U.S. dynamic. We talked about sort of domestic cohesion in the U.S. and Buenos Aires consensus, and then sustainability. And I think, I think 12-month trajectory is probably better than six. Okay. So can I extract a promise from you to sit down in 12 months? Sure. Of course. It's I always a pleasure. Marco, it really is always a pleasure. And again, for those who are always asking what I'm reading, I, I very strongly encourage Marco's book. And um, again, you know, we both brought up this and it really is sitting on my desk, um, Why Nations Fail, because I do think this is going to be the real question that you and I are both kind of dancing around, which is how do the institutional frameworks change over the next 12 to 24 months? That's really going to be the deciding factor in what paints you know, what, what it looks like going forward. Marco, thank you for joining me. I look forward to seeing you again in about 12 months. Super. Thank you, Mike. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.